Hey, what's up, everybody? You're listening to Cannabis Karaoke, where we ask you to grab the mic and tell your story. Get inside info from today's most interesting cannabis pioneers, and from the first note to the end of the song, listen up as you get to hear the stories of success on Cannabis Karaoke. Welcome back to another episode of Cannabis Karaoke. I'm your host, Danny Keith. And, you know, during these times, we're going to be talking to thought leaders, uh, event producers, brands, dispensaries, maybe some customers. We're going to be highlighting people's different path as we go through this COVID period. And uh, I have a, a, a really good interview on deck today. We're going to be talking with Bethany Moore. She's the communications manager for NCIA. She is also a poet and a witch and has been a marijuana activist or cannabis activist since the early 2000s. Thank you, Bethany, for taking some time today. And just for the record, we all make mistakes. I just flubbed the first intro and in like forever on this podcast. So I appreciate you uh, letting me look a little bit unprofessional at the moment. <laughs> no worries. It's uh, great to join you today, Danny. You're also a podcaster as well, so I know you know how fun you got a kick out of my little like ah oh, shit moment and had to like start over. Totally been there a hundred times. Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> That's why we pre-record. <laughs> so just like anything else, right now we're in a digital world, um, and it's it's magnifying. Um, you know, I'll, I'll be honest. Ahead of this little break that we've had. I was social. I was, I feel like, you know, most people would say I knew what I was doing with social, but it's kind of really starting to kick off now. And, and it's not just the Facebook, Instagram kind of piece. And you being someone that works with an events uh, company, which you guys are, I would want to say one of the cornerstone business events uh, that I've always attended. And you've done a really great job of keeping the industry connected and really being a voice in the space. And, you know, with anything else, there's ups and downs. We were talking a little bit before we jumped on how your job is to tell the story. Your job is to integrate with brands and people and you do your podcast. Tell us what's going on, how NCIA might be pivoting and with with respects to what you do for them and how maybe in the near future we're going to see piggybacks on events with a digital component that we may have never thought of before. Yeah, absolutely. You're so right with uh, what's happening with the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, obviously, NCIA, our events are well known by people like yourself. Not only are our major conferences and trade shows that we put on throughout the year, but also our regional networking events that are sometimes exclusive only to NCIA members. Um, so those have been postponed for a while until we can all be back out in public. But um, NCIA is a trade association. So we're 501C6, nonprofit trade association. So in addition to all these events where people network and get education and uh, check out what's on the expo floor, we're, we're also a full service trade association. So in addition to the community that we create, we also provide education and advocacy. So our lobbyists are still in D.C. full-time representing the industry. They're just not walking into the House and Senate buildings right now. Um, and as far as the content that we provide and the education, we've always produced blogs 
Um, and we've had our podcast, our weekly podcast that I host for three and a half years now. And we've done videos and other types of resources. Our policy council publishes policy papers. So all that stuff, that is still happening. In fact, it has quadrupled, if not more, in order to meet the need of everybody sitting at home staring at their screens. Yeah, it's good to know that we've got lobbyists. I mean, like one of the comments that we've run across multiple times on on these interviews is, you know, we've been deemed an essential business, but the banks don't necessarily recognize us as an essential business. Is that like, a, you know, I just read something the other day that I think it was Nancy Pelosi's trying to get the next COVID relief, um, a component in there for essential banking. Did you see that or have you heard yeah, anything I've, about that? I've I've been following the, these, uh, these, you know, financial assistance uh, bills as they've been negotiated back and forth a little bit. Um, as I mentioned earlier, our content has quadrupled, so I'm kind of drinking from the fire hose there. But yes, we yes, cannabis in in the states where they are licensed, regulated cannabis companies, they are essential businesses. Except in Massachusetts right now, where it's medical only, and I I truly hope um, the governor of Massachusetts reverses the uh, the closing of adult use cannabis dispensaries. But um, in most other states, including here in Colorado, where for only three hours <laughs> the prohibition hadn't even gone into effect, but for three hours there was a threat of both liquor stores and adult use dispensaries not being deemed as essential. So they reversed that decision in three hours when they saw the long lines at both the dispensaries and the liquor stores as soon as people got the word. Um, So, but on that bigger federal level, like I mentioned, it's only in states where there is a legal cannabis program. So cannabis is still federally illegal, which is why we're still facing this crisis with banking. Um, On the federal level, and this is why NCIA's advocacy component is so important, Washington, D.C. at the federal level moves at a glacial pace and getting safe banking where where there's a bill that NCIA has been working on for years called safe banking, the secure and fair enforcement banking act. We finally got that out of committee in the house of representatives and passed out of the house by a really great vote margin, I might add. And now it's in the Senate. So this is a standalone piece of cannabis banking legislation. It only addresses banking for state legal cannabis operators. So it's just sitting in the Senate right now. And they've the Senate uh, since the start of the year has been a little bit distracted. <laughs> just slightly. I remember, uh, gosh, it was probably for, I used to sit on the board of a local credit union. And so we would go to credit union functions, like big credit union functions in, in different parts of the world. And one of them I went to was in Vegas. And I happened to meet a gentleman who was working on, I think it was called the Four Corners Bank. It was supposed to be a credit union. He applied for his charter. And unfortunately, you know, like back in the day when we had pr- trouble moving money around, like the reason farmers banks popped up was because they needed a place to bank that was not going to be mixed or intermingled with those, you know, wall street types. Now we don't really have that chance. Like it would make sense that cannabis 
certain cannabis businesses would all get together. I mean, to form a credit union, there are ways, there are vehicles for for credit unions to form and serve certain functions of our uh, community. But it seems like every time we try to run one up the flagpole for cannabis, it just gets shot out. And uh, as much as I'd like to have hope for this bill to get through, I just feel like there's still like we have such a, a top end problem with older thinking and not necessarily even conservatives, because there's a lot of states that have conservative that are, you know, all for cannabis because there's obviously tax revenue and, you know, it's all about less government. But at the end of the day, I think it's still going to take them doing a deschedule, which with the, you know, current landscape of presidents we have coming up is a little bit scary and a little bit dicey. I mean, you got Biden who who thinks like descheduling to schedule two would solve the problem, which would just completely collapse the entire cannabis market. And then yep. who Lord knows what Trump's thinking at the moment. So, you know, here we are face again, another election where we thought four years ago, you know, oh, we had seen the worst and yet the worst is to come. How does NCIA look at uh, forward future, if you will, around what this next president may or may not do. Like, how do you guys prepare for that? Sure, sure. I think there's a, there's a couple layers to it. One, there's, of course, the president himself or herself, or in this case, we know it's two male candidates left. Yep, unfortunately. Um, here we are. We had so many great options earlier on, and here we are. Nevertheless, um, we have a presidential scorecard on our website, thecannabisindustry.org, under... Uh, policy and advocacy menu header, I believe. Yep. And th there, were, there were more candidates there, you know, a few weeks back, and we tracked where they stood on various issues like states' rights, uh, deschedulization, decriminalization, things like that. Now we're down to the, the two candidates, and here's what we know about them. And we are continuing to monitor anything they do or say between now and the election um, and we will update that section of our website. Now, of course, in addition to electing a president, uh, there's more to that ballot this November, right? There's members of Congress that are up for re-election. So we as voters can go down into a congressional scorecard level and look at what candidate have done in the past? Have they co-sponsored or even sponsored themselves any bills that support cannabis? Have they made any public statements in support of cannabis policy? This is what we look at as we approach election day. Um, we made great progress a few years ago. Uh, and, and if not for the people we got into office, especially in the House, uh, we gained a lot of great allies for cannabis policy reform in this last uh, congressional election. So uh, not all the power is held at the presidential level. And I think people need to remember that. Yeah, it's pretty true. The website is flush with information on that kind of stuff. How does, you know, gosh, the biggest challenge we seem to have is getting people out to vote. Like it's amazing. Like if, I'm sure I see you on Facebook, you know, that's, I, that's how I reached out to you. And, and like, we both sit back and watch the, everything from the conspiracy theories to the 5g theories to like Bill Gates is evil. I swear oh we're not God. ready 
for social media yet, but how do we tap into that passion of people to get them to actually vote? Because we all know that at the end of the day, very, very, a minority margin is what drives the kind of the basis of this country. I mean, I think we had, you know, like 40% of the country or something voted. I may be off a little bit, but it's just pathetic. Like even here in Santa Cruz, we had two people being recalled because they were completely out of their minds. And we still got such a low, everybody wanted them recalled. They barely got recalled. And you're just, you're just wondering like, is it that much work to get your ass out and actually vote? Like, how do we solve that problem? How do you guys talk to voters? How do you influence dispensary owners? How do you influence brands to kind of get out there and make sure that they vote? Because really with our industry, that's the only way we're going to enact change is if we get the right people into office that make the right decision. I know. I almost want to say it's it's a rhetorical question because we we know that's the issue, right? We we need we need to show up. I don't know. Maybe we can offer a free avocado toast when you show your <laughs> sticker or something, or, uh, or make dispensaries make dispensaries polling you know places where people can go vote as they get their weed. I mean, I just think that we have to make it. It's more of a question for the the uh infrastructure of our country like it's just it seems maniacal to try to have 300 million or let's just say 200 million people get to the polling booth on a tuesday you know and it's not a holiday like and and there's so many sideways things that that when you go to vote like you really have to i mean my wife and i really sit down and read everything because the fours and the againsts are not only i mean we learned pretty quickly with tiger king that nothing is everything that it seems to be you got to dig a little deeper and that's like i feel like tiger king is like our political infrastructure right now nothing is what it seems to be you know and it's going to be curious to see how we come out of this little this pandemic and you know i think some people think the virus is just going to decide to go away like how is that changing i know we talked a little bit in the beginning about your day-to-day job is already digital and now it's quadrupling how do you see what we're going through right now kind of impacting the future um, and specifically to NCIA? Like, how are you guys going to be planning for events and, and what kind of mechanisms, if in any, can you guys integrate into like getting people to vote and show up so that we can make some change? I mean, yeah, those are all great questions. I mean, I mean, there's there's the idea of motivating. Sure, you may have motivated voters, but as as you touched on what if those voters don't have access to the polls what if they have to go to work what if they can't drive uh i think i think seeing more online and by mail voting opportunities would obviously help a lot of people out um to be able to mail in a ballot if you don't have access to drive to a polling place just seems like easy. Why can't we vote on our phones? Why, why can't we just have an app? Like they, you can, if you can bank and pay bills with Apple pay and you know, there's always going to be some level of hacking that takes place, whether it's, I think if we were able to do something through a, through an app per se, people could vote right when they wake up in the morning, you could hound them all day to vote. And then there's less chance I feel like paper ballots and all that is so easily manipulated. And oops, we just lost two bins of ballots, you know, and anytime you add a human into it, it just seems to kind of clog up the pipe a little bit. Um, Yeah. yeah, I'd love to see the technology around voting and the ability for people to plug into being 
to being advocates, to connecting with their members of Congress and their legislators. And it is interesting what we're going through, as you mentioned, like, yeah, we've been sheltered in place for a month. Some of us, me, just over a month. We're all working remotely. We have figured it out. We've taken the technology home with us that we need. We've figured out workarounds. A lot of people have mentioned that this coronavirus is really showing us which jobs really, really needed to be at a desk in an office versus where there's more flexibility um, for workers to split their time between home and the office, right? Um, so, and with the increase of blogs and podcasts and online resources and videos for us to consume connection, for us to consume education and knowledge and information, I think even when measures are loosened around social distancing and, and businesses reopening, I think we're still going to see an increase in that kind of online content because things aren't just going to go back to normal. I, I, I really think it's going to be incremental and I've been reading some things that support my thinking on that. Uh, they're not just going to open up the whole world and release the hounds, right? They're going to start by opening some businesses and then work their way up to restaurants and then bars. And the last thing that we're going to see open is theaters and stadiums and larger gatherings of people. So, I mean, that, that, that begs the question, what do you do as an organization that's running, you know, state-of-the-art educational conferences? Well, We'll see. Uh, hopefully, we'll see you on San Francisco at the Moscone Center on uh, September 29th and 30th and October 1st for our rescheduled Cannabis Business Summit and Expo. It's our seventh year. Um, uh, virtual online opportunities to continue to engage people, to continue to educate people. We used to produce one webinar a month at NCIA. We just started doing that last year. We're increasing that like four or five fold just so we can make sure that we have a connection and that we're continuing to keep this industry connected with each other, inspired, informed. A lot of our content is around how to handle COVID-19 as a dispensary owner, right? Since we're essential businesses, we started a hashtag campaign called cannabis is essential just to underscore that thought that, yeah, cannabis is an essential business. Let's protect it. Let's pass banking. Let's legalize it nationwide. Um, God, so many nuggets that you just popped out right there of value. I hope people take those in and listen. You know, it's it was a great – it gave me chills. <clears throat> you know, I've been – I've been obviously smoking weed my whole life. It's always been part of my life in some fashion. I've always moved some weight and I was kind of a duffel bag kid back in the day. And you know, when it, it, it's like this, the whole COVID thing has kind of put a stress test across everything, right? It's like one humongous stress test. And it, it's funny when they had to make that decision, are they, or are they not? You know, cause I feel like at least in California where I'm at, you know, there's been this line where it's like, eh, you know, can't, we're doing it because that's what people want. 
you know what I mean? Versus like the real knee. Colorado is a little bit more holistic. I feel in the whole cannabis space. I may be wrong. I don't live there. That's for you to tell me. But in California, initially they also said, Nope, sorry. And then it wasn't until there was an outcry that they reversed that. And actually we have a couple counties. The biggest struggle we have in California is that the state legalized, but then it's up to the counties and the cities to implement. And it's just a cluster when it's like that. And so you have these different counties that are like, sorry, it's only going to be medicinal now. You know, you can't just do recreational and that's happening in San Jose and Santa Cruz at the moment. And, you know, all of a sudden the pot docs are back in business because they had gone out of business because nobody was getting their medical card anymore, even though they could save some money, buy more they can buy more cannabis. They're just like, eh, I'll just go in and get my cannabis. I see that as being a resurging component. I don't really care. I just am glad that when we got that designation as essential, that was such a breakthrough moment um, for us as an industry because up until then, I don't think anybody had really put that thought to that. And then when you start talking about, you know, the broader spectrum, like let's just take the, the world as a whole, how amazing our planet is coming back right now because we're not out just doing what we think we need to do every day as humans. We're not very smart about what we need to do or what we have to do. We do what we want to do. And I think management should be taking a note on all of this and saying, man, we could actually reduce our offices. Like so many people, the two times I've had to run a regular job, like I'm, I'm probably, you and I are probably a lot alike in the sense that if it takes me 16 hours to do something, it takes me 16 hours to do something. If it takes me three, woohoo, I can start day drinking, you know? And so the, this whole <laughs> process of like button seat for nine hours, two and a half hours away, each direction might be going away. We might see people realizing that, I mean, first of all, some of these businesses aren't going to, they're going to have had to give up their offices. They're going to have had to give up their locations, but they're still going to want to keep their business and they're still going to want to keep their champions unless those people leave or get laid off. At which point now there's so much talent available. I mean, even before we went into COVID, there were so many talented cannabis people that were going through the first phase of layoffs because they were the highest up in the space. And all of a sudden the typical process of like removing a high paced person to get two lower paid people to do the same job was starting to happen coming on the back of this. I feel like there's going to be like this plethora of people that are not necessarily associated or have an alliance to any one business in, in general. Does NCIA see themselves getting involved in like helping reconnect employees to employers in the space? Like, is that something that you guys are, are talking about internally? Man, that's, that's a, that's a great question. I, I think there's so much ahead of us that worrying about those that are losing their jobs in the industry is definitely a concern as, as an industry that's shown to be such a great job creator, actually, um, in states that are legalizing, it's creating massive amounts of jobs, not just at the dispensary, but the cultivation sites, the manufacturing facilities, everything. And then all the ancillary businesses that support, um, you know, the lawyers, the accountants, the marketing professionals, the software companies. I, I, would, I would like to think this is all temporary. I would like to think this recession in general not only for the cannabis industry, but for all of us is short term uh, that we're not going to see this stretch out over two, three years like we saw 10 years ago in, in the Great Recession, which kicked me on on my rear end. Oh, I mean, I don't a, know. <laughs> it was a reset for me. I mean, I went 
I went to, totally. I was in action sports prior. And so I did, I had owned my surf shop in Santa Cruz for, I still own it, but it's operated by somebody else at the moment. But 24 years I was in business. And then just, I can like October, 2008. I remember distinctly when I started seeing numbers just drop out of nowhere. And you're going, what the hell? Mm-hmm. I lost a house. I, my wife and I split up for a, a little bit. Like it was hectic and you had yeah. to rebuild. And you know, a lot of people, face tough times when that takes place. And so when this one went down, you know, I posted up on Facebook and I just told people, I said, Hey, if you're struggling, give me a call, you know, we'll talk about it. And you know, it's funny, most, or it's not funny. It's anecdotal, I guess that people have pretty much the same concerns. How am I going to pay my bills? Am I going to have a job when I come out of this? There's like some basic, you know, securities that people are worried about. And, you know, for once, you know, the recession, it, it flipped a lot of people's carts, but not everybody's, right? In this situation, it's literally flipped everyone's cart. Like I read a thing the other day that we've lost 500,000 millionaires since the stock market has tanked, you know? And so that's real, man. That's like, that's Whoa. tangible. Wow. Yeah. yeah so, so I wild. think, you know, I think when you start talking about people having jobs and you know, you're right. It, it is a job creation market. And like, I could, you know, look at dispensers right now, they're blowing up and so are brands, but they're doing it with almost no staff. Cause it's all curbside pickup or delivery. So I, I can see some people, you know, out of these endeavors, if you look back over time, every time we've had something to this scale of catastrophe, if you will, there's been a lot of amazing things that have come out on the back end of it. And that's what I'm trying to employ with people is like, look, yeah, the, you know, somebody came and flipped our table. We got to now pick up the pieces and try to figure it out. But remember that job that you were working that you didn't like? Well, maybe this is a time to change that. You know, there's so much cover that COVID provides or this kind of a, of a situation provides that allows people to pivot um, and go do something else. Speaking of pivot... I want to talk, you know, we talked a little bit about the NCAA game, which is your day to day. Let's talk about your poetry. Bring up a little bit about like how you're inspired to write and what you've done with it so far. Oh, yeah. Thanks. Thanks for asking. Um, I have been writing poetry since elementary school. I had a, a fifth grade teacher actually also that really encouraged me to and I've just been involved in poetry groups and clubs and open mic nights uh, for years in, in the D.C. area, a little bit in Portland, Oregon, here in Denver, Colorado. Wow. Really, really amazing poets here as well. Um, so I self I've self-published four books so far. Three of them are poetry collections. One of them is actually a short story. It's a dark fairy tale is the best way I can describe it. Uh, All of them have themes, uh, whether it's the poetry or the story, uh, themes of nature, things of uh, natural disasters, weather, space, uh, as well as spirituality, like ritual and alchemy and uh, very pagan elements to them. So, I I have combined two things that are very meaningful to me and my identity, which is poetry as well as my spirituality. And um, in pretty much every piece, there's an infusion of you know not only 
whatever I'm trying to express emotionally or thoughtfully, the symbolism I use and the themes I use are typically surrounding nature and ritual and uh, a little bit of space. I like planets and stars and nebulas and those kinds of concepts too. So um, yeah, they're all on Amazon. I, I used you know, the Amazon self-publishing platform for Kindle. So it's available in both print and digital Kindle format on Amazon. And how's, <clears throat> what is people's response been to that? Cause that's, that's a passion play for you, correct? I mean, you're, you're writing from a point of passion. It's not something that, I mean, obviously if it took off and went really huge, you'd be stoked on it, but you came at it from a place of passion. I always love, you know, when you say you do open mic night, I always think of Henry Rollins when he first started doing his open mic nights, you know, and spoken word. And I became a big, I'm a big fan of vaudeville style entertainment. I don't mean to discredit anybody's, you know, practice, but it's like, you know, that in immediate, it's kind of why I named cannabis karaoke, why I named it is because like, it's just this open mic of us talking about stuff and, you know, you never know how it's going to really go. And so when you're doing that open mic with poetry, it's pretty much an intimate setting, right? You're in a coffee shop, you're in a bar, maybe you're in, or at least a restaurant that's got an area that you can actually like sequester off. How are, how did you deal with that? Because getting up in front of a mic to read something that you've written yourself takes a little bit of guts to stand up and do that. Sure. I think every poet is different. Um, some enjoy the writing and, and are maybe a little too shy to perform it in public. Uh, but they're okay just sharing it online with somebody for they themselves to read. For me, um, I mean, I also enjoy singing and performing in theater. So there's an element of wanting to get up on stage and share my art and and share my experience with an audience and and move them and make them think about make them think about their lives, make them think about my life, make them think about someone else's life. Um, just inspire them maybe. So it, it's a relationship with your audience. If you're one of those people that really enjoys getting up and doing public speaking or singing or reading poetry, it's, it's almost like I'm compelled to do it. I can't not do it. I have to. I, I get release from it. It's catharsis. And whether the audience connects with it or not is honestly a whole separate issue. It's, it's the feeling I get also of getting up there on stage, sharing two or three poems, my face being flush and I'm all shy, kind of. Uh, and then I get off stage and they clap and then I sit down and I'm just happy that I did it. I, I feel good that I got it out of my system uh, no matter what. And then ideally somebody is like, hey, I really liked your poem. And I say, awesome. I'm really glad you connected with it. And then I feel like my art's going even that much further. Yeah. It's <clears throat> being someone like I totally relate because after doing – almost a decade of on-air live radio and then not doing it anymore. And then I like to story tell. So like we'll film like for Emerald cup or other events and, you know, kind of help tell that story. But there is something cathartic about doing your own thing. And I, I'm somewhat of a performer, not to your level. I'm envious that you can sit down and do poetry. I've always wanted to write, 
but I'm just, I can't, I want to, I want to be able to just get somebody that can ghost right for me so that I can just talk to them because I get distracted pretty easily. And so I end up starting something and then not finishing it. Or I don't know about you, but I, that my notepad on my phone is, is a huge friend or foe if somebody were to find it. But you know, I, I sometimes will throw out my thoughts, you know, verbally on, you know, a notepad just so I can go back to them later. What's your practice on how you kind of tune in your, your work and what you're going to present to people? Because some things sound great after, you know, some drinks or some cocktails, and then you read it back in the morning. And I'll, ah, I think that one's going to stay where it's at right now. <laughs> oh, I definitely recommend having, having a little bit to drink or smoke. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, definitely helps. Uh, I think while well, the writing process, uh, I can actually kind of relate that in the, the last couple of years, I haven't written as much as I would like to. Um, I was just like, I was on fire a few years ago, though, three, four, five poems a night. My favorite thing to do is go sit at a coffee shop or a bar even or a restaurant by myself and open up. I, I do this with my journal or diary, whatever you'd like to call it as well. I'll just sit there over some coffee or a couple drinks, maybe some dinner and write in my journal. And typically there has been some kind of concept or thought or a set of words that struck me during the day that I want to like sit down and work with those, those strikes from the muse, those flashes of inspiration while you're like sitting at a red light or something on the way to target. And you're like, Oh, I have to remember that for later when I can sit down and expound upon it. So that's probably the best way to describe like how I really get the good poems that come out or, um, is, is I get that, that lightning flash of some kind of idea. And, and then I finally sit down and start scribbling it out. Um, so when there's, you, there's, <clears throat> so, sorry. So when you, I have a question real quick, cause I'll forget. Uh, so do you write in order? Cause I, sometimes when I write, like when I do things, it doesn't always come out in order. Like sometimes I'm writing the middle and then I go back and do the beginning um, or sometimes I'm right in the end. How, is that similar in a process for you? Or do you literally go start to finish with your stuff? No, it's interesting. I, I think when I, you know, do the first, first draft and, and get the first run of ideas out, I'll end up looking at it more holistically and saying, you know, maybe we, I should switch these, these paragraphs or stanzas, flip those or, oh, I don't like that word. I'm going to cross that out and put this other word there. And sometimes I've got like arrows around. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, like, right. Oh, circles, arrows, and stars. Circles, arrows, stars. Uh, yeah. So they, they get a little, um, they get a little flow chart looking at some point, And then I, then I do a fresh clean copy <laughs> and look at it again and see how I like it. And, and I, I like to do hand handwritten because of those circles and arrows and crossing things out. It's a very tactile experience. It's, it's more immersive. And then I kind of save um, the final version for, for when I type it up and put it on, put it in a digital format. It, it, it should be pretty much a hundred percent locked in by the time I type it up. Well, and it's something that kind of commits to memory too. Like I find, you know, when we 
when we do anything and you know, it's not like it's some ingenious method or anything, but I, I, I have millions of little notepads, moleskin notebooks or whatever you want to call them. And yeah. by the way, if for giveaways at shows, I love people that give away branded, um, moleskin notepads because I literally blow through those things so fast, but I take notepads. I take notes with me everywhere I go, no matter what, even if I don't have an actual physical notepad, I will take notes on the phone. Not because I won't remember because I, I do have a pretty, uh, photographic memory, but it's more to like impress upon me what I, it's weird. My body kind of interprets the notes later as like what's important and what's not important. But if I don't write it down, it's like, I don't kick off that, that the component of being constructive with whatever I'm trying to accomplish. And to your point, you know, it's, it is something that's a bit of a list making process to make sure that you go through and you finish everything A to B writing can be really fun and, and, you know, invigorating, or it can be just a, a pain in the ass. And so for me, I try to make it as fun and as invigorating as possible. I look forward to getting some more inspiration here soon and, and <laughs> writing fresh material. You got to get out. I think from what I'm hearing, you know, like I, I'm, I'm another one that likes to go to coffee shops as well. And I feel like the frenetic energy that's around me somehow fills me to where I'm in my own zone, but all these people are doing their thing around me. And so it's like, I just, for whatever reason, I feel like I pick up that energy and, and it really kind of ignites my creativity, which brings us to our topic of being a pagan. So you, and you're a self-proclaimed witch, which I don't, like, I think that's great. I think we're more in touch with the earth than I feel like religion is. And so talk to me a little bit about being a pagan in these days and uh, what, you know, what it is and how it is you practice that. Because it's not just people think, oh, he's a witch. Oh, she's casting spells. That's not really what it's all about. I mean, it's a component of it, but it's really about tuning in to nature and tuning in to Mother Earth. And, you know, most of our religious holidays actually are built off pagan practices. Very true. Yes. Uh, yeah, it's it's a, a topic I enjoy speaking on. Much like poetry, I, I found paganism or witchcraft or wicca whatever you'd like to refer to it <laughs> at, at a young age and um my parents were supportive even as you know midwestern moderate conservatives thankfully they were very supportive when when i came out of the broom closet and told them i i study witchcraft and paganism my, my dad was pretty cool about it he's like i know what that is so he wasn't scared and i also found a group and and this was the mid 90s in southern maryland in saint mary's county maryland so uh, i found a group of elders from a the, like the first wiccan metaphysical shop to ever open up in southern maryland i'm sure called keepers of the moon garden uh I went there as soon as it opened, met the shop lady. Um, my parents gave gave everyone permission for me as a minor to study with that coven, which turned out to be statewide with hives and state recognized as, a, as an organization as well. So I studied under those elders to learn about the wheel of the year, uh, the different holidays to learn about herbal medicine. Um, of course, there's all those things like crystals and astrology and ritual. Um, there's there's lots to study. Uh, 
in in paganism there's lots of different topics no matter when it interests you and even beyond when i when i went off to high school in the uh sorry college in the early 2000s um i found another women's circle uh up closer to university of maryland enjoyed practicing with them as well and even when i can't find a group to share community with um i i've been comfortable over the years just inviting friends who are wicca friendly not necessarily serious about it but they think it's cool and they'll join me for a ritual a very kind of pared down urban ritual as i like to call it uh where we're just sharing space um we're honoring the the natural cycles around us of the wheel of the year whatever season it is the moon phase things going on in our lives and it's an opportunity to share space and energy with each other and talk about things we want to bring into our lives and manifest into our lives and grow and nurture as well as the other side of you know destruction and banishing and cleansing and freeing things that aren't serving us anymore that we don't need any longer or we don't want um and then just the strength to deal with uh, the things we can't control as well, providing that community with each other and providing an opportunity for us to look within ourselves for things we need in order to thrive. Yeah, it's fun. It's interesting that you say that because I've not really a religious person, but I've ex- I've kind of made it a point to go and experience as many different religions as I can. And I feel like with the paganism play, like my, my wife is a little bit more pagan than anything else. And it's, it's, it's really a, a, and I, I would consider myself either a pagan person or a Buddhist because I feel like for me, religion just seems so like confining and it's almost like a baseball team or a football team. It's like exactly what's going on in politics right now where it's like, are you red or are you blue? And it's like, well, sometimes I'm red and sometimes I'm blue and maybe I'm blue more lately than I'm red, but it's really Mm -hmm. hard to make choices, right. Or to support, you know, like all these churches going out and deciding to hold services right now and thinking that God's going to protect them. It's like, well, he doesn't protect you if, if he truly is there or she or whatever it is, the the common sense piece has to be in play first. Um, you can't, you know, you can't say I'm going to play chicken with a knife in my hand. And because I'm religious, I won't cut a finger off is not exactly what the, the whole thing has been built on. And so for me, I see people like yourself and I just, I feel like you, you're a better tuning fork to who is and who isn't somebody you want to work with. Um, your eyes are more wide open to, chain chain link reactions of, of having relationships or, or engaging with things. I, I kind of like to say if it doesn't for me, if I'm not feeling it in my gut necessarily, I really can't do it no matter how much you're paying me or want me to do it. And I feel like what that kind of belief system really envelops is that free thinking and, you know, being willing to make decisions. And then like, to your point, like a lot of people don't cast bad people out of your lives. I always tell people judge my enemies by the people that, that I, you know, judge me by my enemies because those are people that I don't want to deal with. And those are people that I feel like I need to get out of my life. And I tell people all the time we can, you know, we can agree to disagree, whatever. But like, if I stop 
wanting to interact with you, it's not just on social media, it's also in person, you know? And so there's just, it's refreshing to hear your kind of take on all that stuff and how you actually apply it. So, you know, as we kind of wrap up here, um, I want to give you a chance to tell people where they can find you on social media, what websites, and I'll include these in the blog. So if you don't want to spell them out, you don't have to. Um, and then just, uh, we'll wrap up with talking about, uh, our eight o'clock howling session that will take place tonight. Yes. God, that howl at eight movement is saving my life right now. <laughs> it's, it's been crazy out here in Santa Cruz because on a darker note, we lost, uh, a very young girl to somebody that, you know, was living within her area and she always liked to howl. And so we've been howling in Santa Cruz now for close to two years. Um, but it's definitely amplifying, um, as we kind of are going through this period to the point where the entire coast is just, all you hear is people howling, you know, it's pretty impactful. Wow. Wow. Yeah. It like gives me shivers for sure. Good stuff. Uh, so tell people where they can find you. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, on on Twitter and my Facebook.com URL, I go by, and on Instagram for that matter, I'm Beatnik Betty, B-E-A-T-N-I-K-B-E-T-T-Y. I also have a poetry uh, page on Facebook. It's Facebook.com slash Bethany Moore Poet. Uh, but Beatnik Betty is my social media handle and has been for many, many years. So that's probably a good way to find me. Nice. Um, and then we can find you hopefully um, from September 29th to October 1st in San Francisco, correct? To hold the next NCIA event. You better believe it. Yeah. Cannabisbusinesssummit.com. I believe we will have a uh, on expo floor podcast studio. So I saw you did uh, that in Boston. Was it this last time? Yes. Yes, that was great. It was our first time having uh, a podcast studio right there on the expo floor. So and awesome. I got like 22 interviews in two days. I was just killing it. It was great. So all that content is being released as we speak uh, in, in weekly episodes on NCIA's weekly podcast, NCIA's Cannabis Industry Voice. It's crazy. This space doesn't have a lot of outlets to tell stories. And I feel like podcasts have been around for 20 years. But like when cannabis came around, all of a sudden, it just lit up the podcast world because everybody I know either wants to do one or has been on one. And so that's a, such a great feature to add to the show. I think it just gives people a chance to, it just builds so much. Like even after this, you and I are going to have a different relationship than we had before, which is actually just digital. We just, I just started following you on Facebook and we became friends and we've met a couple times at NCIA and it's like, but now I have a much clear, bigger picture of what, you know, what beat Nick Betty is all about and you know how to, cause it's important, right? We don't slow down enough at times to really get to know one another. And I feel like doing podcasts gives you that, 40 minutes or so time to, to kind of figure out if you like the person or not. And if you do, you find out a little bit more about them that you didn't know before. That's totally true. Yeah. I really enjoy getting to have conversations with people through the podcast, really, you know, asking questions you probably wouldn't normally ask in passing. Right. Sure. Absolutely. Well, so like, do you validate? Do I know, right. I'm a howler. <laughs> so I will be howling with you at eight o'clock tonight digitally. And I just want to say thank you for taking the time 
during this period where everything's a little bit in flux to uh, get on and and tell your story. And, and I hope uh, we get to chat soon again. And even sooner, I hope we're out and about. Yeah, 100%. And, and thank you for having me on the show and letting me share a little bit about more of myself with your audience. Appreciate it. That's a wrap. Thank you for listening to this edition of Cannabis Karaoke, another kick-ass podcast about all things cannabis. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and our website, CannabisKaraoke.tv. And if you or someone you know would like to be on the show, please hit the Book Your Interview button on the right. Cannabis Karaoke, grab the mic and tell your story. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. I'm Larry Mishkin, and I'd like to invite you to join Rob Hunt and me on our weekly podcast, The Deadhead Cannabis Show. Each week, we explore the latest cannabis and jam band news and reminisce with other deadheads and jam band lovers about the great musical acts that we've seen and heard. Check out a new episode every Monday.